This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is J.S. Shelton. So his mission is to directly confront sexual sin inside the church today. So he is the author of a book called Unmuzzled, where he goes into a lot of detail on this. So guys, this is a unique interview because we will be talking about basically porn and sexual sin the entire time. And so we try to keep things as um, as acceptable as possible for most ears, but there are certain subjects that we do get into that if you have a young child, it might be something that you, that's near you. You might want to listen to it first before you let them hear it or listen to it because we do talk about masturbation. We do talk about people that have affairs. We talk about specific instances and, and types of things that, that men should do depending upon the situation that they're in. But guys, this is a, a very edifying conversation, but I do want to mention this before I get into the interview. Afterwards, we were kind of talking and he was a little bit concerned that our conversation didn't bring the grace element enough into it. Because when you talk about this subject, there could be a lot of shame around it, right? Especially when you talk about it in the terms that he does in his book and in the terms of our conversation. But what I told him and what he agreed with is, you know, there are a lot of ministries today, a lot of churches today that spend almost all their time on the grace side of things, almost all their time on the lamb of God side of things. They never talk about truth. They never talk about law. They never talk about sin. They never talk about the Lion of Judah. And so if we don't mention those things enough enough for your taste, just know it's because we're trying to swing the pendulum back just a little bit. We're trying to bring a little bit more balance there because, again, you can't fully understand who Jesus is if you only understand him as the Lamb of God. And the same is true if you only understand him as the Lion of Judah. You have to understand that he's 100% both of them. He's 100% grace, 100% truth, and all those things at the same time. So I did want to kind of bring that out there to you, but I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. J.S. Shelton, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. I'm absolutely happy to have you here. We're going to be talking about a super low-key subject today. We're going to be talking about porn. So all you guys buckle in. It's going to be a lot of fun. You obviously heard me talk about in the intro what we're going to be talking about today, so it shouldn't be a surprise to you. But you say that your mission is to directly confront sexual sin in the church today. So let's just start there. Why is that your mission? Absolutely, Kyle. This was my struggle most of my young life into my marriage. And I've come to realize most men... Most church-going men struggle with this and hide it. And there's not enough men out there, Kyle, that are willing to stand up and say something true about it, biblical truth about it. We've spent too much time putting forth tactics and techniques that sideskirt the issue altogether. And we'll certainly get into a lot of that, but most of the stuff that we're going to be commenting on and talking about today is coming from the book that you sent me. So thank you again for sending this to me. This is a book that you released this year called Unmuzzled. So again, we're going to get into some specific sections and quotes from the book here in a second, but just generally, you know, from 30,000 foot view, what is the book about and what do you want readers to get out of it? Yeah. Great question, Kyle. The book's about sexual immorality. It's not just focusing on pornography. It's about that we were created as sexual creatures, but yet the Bible tells us that we are to be sexually pure. And you'll meet very few men today that are living sexually pure lives. And that's what the book's about. The premise of what led me to write the book was a certain young man that came into my business. I was helping him on a vehicle deal, and he later was imprisoned for 60 years for possession and child 
He was later put in prison for possession and distribution of child pornography. And at that point in my life, I was conquering this sin. I was conquering my struggle with pornography, not child pornography, but just regular pornography. And I said, I got to stand up and start speaking to men about this. So in part one of the book, and, and again, like if you want to give extra context and all that as we give answers, like obviously I'm assuming people haven't read the book yet, but guys, it'll be in the show notes so that you can check it out. But in part one of the book, it's called Satan's Number One Attack. So in that section, you make the argument that Satan uses porn or I guess more broadly sexual sin as his number one attack on men. Now, obviously people would perhaps quibble with that because someone could read the scripture and say Satan's going to attack them in another way or in this way and that type of thing. I would say that I'm probably sympathetic to that argument because we've seen, you know, tremendous examples of these so-called great Christian men that have been taken down by sexual sin. We've seen a lot of them even here recently. Um, So give me your, I guess, argument as to why you think that is Satan's number one attack on men. Yeah. We were number one, we were created as sexual creatures. I mean, our designer, God created us to be sexually attracted to females as men. So that's number one. And we have to own up to that. You know, you can't preach this at the church, but I tell men all the time, we are sexual predators. When we see an attracted woman, we desire it. We want it. And we need to own up to that and be honest about it. But that's our innate design. But if you read the Bible, God calls us to be sexually pure. And the only allowance for sex, thoughts about sex, actual sex, is in a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Outside of that, it's against God and it's against our own flesh. Well, you you said just there that you can't you know preach that type of thing you know in church or something like that. I, I guess I'd be curious as to to why you, why you feel like you couldn't because even in chapter two you talk about how I guess quote unquote tolerant we are as Christians in modernity about the issue of sexual sin and that's not yeah. just society being tolerant because obviously society claims to be tolerant about everything, but that the church specifically people inside the church are tolerant about sexual sin, people having sex outside of marriage, people yeah. living together, people getting divorces and then getting remarried, which is you know which is adultery and those types of right. things. So I guess. Why wouldn't you talk about it? There, of all the places on the planet that you should be able to talk about, it should be church, no? Absolutely. And why? I agree, Kyle. But the reason you don't hear church pastors sounding the alarm on this, and specifically by saying we're sexual predators, is because they know the media would get a hold of it and they'd be persecuted. And the number one organization that doesn't want to be persecuted, that the Bible says it will be persecuted, is the church. They're too afraid to stand up and speak the truth like we're called to on this topic specifically because they don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to turn people off. They don't want to lose members. And I've experienced it firsthand. The church I went to, Kyle, who I knew all the senior leaders, I was there for 15 years. When I wrote the message, they all stayed away from me. Did they give you a reason for that or did they just kind of like put you at a distance? Yeah. The first reason was uh, when I asked if the bookstore would carry the book, they said it was because I was not a pastor and they were downsizing their product mix. In other words, it's not good for business. I mean, I would say that that's part of the reason why on the show, and I told you this off air, that's why I talk about the topics that most 
pastors or so-called pastors at these churches won't talk about because their flocks are walking around wondering, how do I speak into a culture that you know supports Black Lives Matter? How do I speak into a culture that supports transgenderism in children or the LGBTQ you know, sexual revolution or any of these sexual deviancies? And they walk around confused because their pastors won't talk about it. And the thing is, is if you talk about it, it becomes a dividing line for people. So as a business strategy, as an entrepreneur, I understand that. But as a pastor, you're not given that as an option. To where it's like, oh yeah, I guess Amen. we're not going to do this because it's going to make people feel bad and give them the sads. It's like that, that's not exactly how how we should really operate and do this. But I think the other thing that's important here, and this is this is a part of the thing that you go into in part one in chapter two specifically. Well, I'll just read you this quote here, and we'll we'll get a little bit more context on it. Did you know sexual sin is different from all other sins? The Bible tells us every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And that's 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Right there in the Bible, we are plainly told sexual sin is unique. This sin is spiritually and physically, uh, this sin spiritually and physically incapacitates us. Now, I will tell you this. I've had discussions with people, it'd probably be uh, too heavy handed to call them debates, but discussions with men in my life that I am very, very close with that they just don't take certain types of sexual sin that seriously because it's just like, Hey, you know, people are just going to do it. Or, you know, Christians, conservative Christians really like to make a big deal out of homosexuality and a big deal about this and that and the other thing. And I try to explain to them exactly what you said there, which is you don't get that. Like that's not given to you because this is a completely different kind of sexual sin. But why is that so confusing, especially for people in the church outside of the fact that they clearly that just don't read their Bible? Yeah. Why is it so confusing? Because every one of us struggle with it. I haven't met a single man that doesn't struggle sexually. And, and we're talking to men mainly here, but women are struggling at an alarming rate as well. Mm -hmm. And so why is it confusing? Because it's a desire it's our flesh. We desire it. And so when, when, when we look at the Bible and it tells us, hey, you can't do that. Sex is reserved for a covenant marriage bed alone. But yet we desire it and we feel it and we can't overcome it. We start to justify it, Kyle. I mean, I was there. I was, I was in church praising the Lord when I just looked at pornography a few nights before when I was in college. And so how did I do that? God's grace. You know, every Christian I meet that continues to struggle will say about the same thing. Praise the Lord for His grace. And that's, that's such a huge problem. Grace does not just overlook our sin. We use God's grace like a morning after pill. I mean, if we're going to be honest, that's what most men do. They sin sexually, and then they take a morning after pill of grace and wash their hands clean and move on. I meet guys that spend the night in porn or at church Sunday morning with their hands raised, praising the Lord. And, you know, if you read the Bible, that should baffle every single one of us. At some point, you have to go all in with God's Word or, or just go away from it completely. If you're not going to go in with God's Word, just go find a different—Matt uh, uh, Chandler uh, said this once. Go find a different hobby. Yeah, it's it's— it shouldn't be treated as a hobby. Obviously, that's something that a lot of people really right. do. And there should be a little bit of dissonance there because even though we are saved, we are still fallen. Like we still sin. There are still things that we act out on. But it is interesting how people uh, become so okay with it and so comfortable with it. Because And there's no sense of like regret or shame or repentance. And that's one thing, and I don't really want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I think shame is a tremendous motivator. People talk mm -hmm. about it when you read these new age parenting books or, you know, psychology books or whatever. It's like, oh, shame is terrible. It's like, no, shame has kept me 
And the potential for future shame has kept me from doing a lot of things that would be detrimental to me, my family, like my right. reputation, everything. So shame is a tremendous motivator. Now, I do want to get into something else because you kind of teed this up from the beginning of the conversation. This is actually another quote from chapter two of the book. So let me read it to you here. Retraining our eyes, software protection, accountability, and that you can be supernaturally healed from temptation. These techniques only deceive a man into thinking he can become fireproof. It's why most of the get free from porn techniques eventually fizzle out. It's how men become free one day and fail miserably the next or fall miserably the next. It's why every single pastor in the world should or who should be leading this battle isn't. You can't give what you don't have. If you never actually conquer, how can you teach others to conquer? This book will plainly lay out a biblical, uh, lay out the biblical directives that yield freedom from sexual immorality. Otherwise, I'd be wasting your time and mine. So here's the thing about that. Having, and I've talked about this on the show before, having back in the day struggled with pornography, struggled with masturbation is something that I don't really struggle with now. I'm still have that temptation, but it's not something that I actively struggle with on a day-to-day basis. Retraining my eyes was a big deal of, you know, quote unquote, getting clean. Software protection is a good thing and, and a positive thing. And it's still something that I have now, you know, accountability partners and all that, which I still have now. Those are all good things. But at the end of the day, it's just you. You know, your wife leaves for the weekend or, you know, the kids are out of the house or you're by yourself. The thing is, is we know how to get around our filters. We know how to to lie to our accountability partners. Like we know how to uh, retrain our eyes in certain circumstances, but then when literally no one else is watching, our eyes all of a sudden don't bounce the way that they used to. But those are all still really positive things. And so I don't want a guy out there that's struggling with this to think that's a really stupid thing. That's not really a good idea. And and I'll let you hop in here in a second, but I do want to give you this as context. So when I was in my early twenties and I was trying to figure out how I could, you know, overcome this and do all that, I go to this meeting and it was this meeting where you just kind of show up and they put you in this group and there's five or six people in a group. And it's all people that all men that were struggling with sexual sin of some kind. It was everything from a guy in his early twenties that would look at porn periodically and masturbate, you know, going through his highlight reel to guys that were pharmacists that would go and have random sex with random women, contract sexually transmitted diseases, accidentally give them to their wives and then sneak pills into their wife's food to kill whatever virus, like the level of depravity. It was astonishing to me, but the group, we would get into these groups and it would be like this guy that's like, yeah, you know, I made it two days without looking at porn and jerking off. And, you know, I fell yesterday and gosh, you know, but I'm back on the wagon today. And then everybody in the group would kind of be like, man, it's okay. Like, you know, that's good. You made it two whole days, but let's make it three days next time. And I'm looking around like, am I the weirdo? Because (laughs) this, this seems crazy to me. So I know that's a really, really long time for me to talk on an interview, but I just kind of wanted to tee that up. So do you not like retraining your eyes? Do you not like software protection? Is accountability stupid? Kind of give me a little bit more there. Yeah, Kyle. And what you witness in that group, that is the church crowd today. That is men's groups all over the world. The same thing is happening. And so, no, I am not against anything that is put forth to keep a man pure. Software protection, retraining your eyes getting prayed over, getting the demons of hell cast out of you in a, in a healing group, go through it all. I mean, if you're walking toward Christ, great. That means you're not walking toward the enemy. Now here's where this message differs than, than what most of the church puts out today. We are teaching non-biblical tactics versus biblical directives. 
And here's what I mean by that. We're telling men to get free from this. You need to do these things. You need to, you need to get uh, accountability. You need to get another brother. You need to get software protection. You know, you need to serve more in the church. You need to, you need to make sure you're tithing. You need to uh, read your Bible more. You need to get physically healed from this. You need to get a healing appointment set up, you know, to have guys pray over you and cast the demons of hell right out of you. This is what churches all over the world do when they actually decide to take a, a stance on this issue. None of that is in the Bible. Now, now accountability is in the Bible. But it's not in relation to confessing sexual sin over and over and over again. Accountability is healthy. Software protection is awesome. Kyle, we use software protection in our home because we have five kids. I love, I love software protection. But I'll tell you this, Kyle, every man I've met that has software protection finds a way around it and continues to struggle year after year after year. Every man I've met that has an accountability partner continues to struggle year after year. The, the biggest example is I know a guy that's had the same accountability partner for 30 plus years. When we met for lunch, I asked him, when's the last time you had to confess sexual sin to him? He said, uh, it's probably been about a week ago. And so guys that have accountability partner find and feel this freedom because they confuse their confession of sin for freedom from sin. So it's almost like I was just jotting this down as you were saying that it's almost like giving a cancer patient a bunch of different bandages. And so it's like, Absolutely. you know, and, and again, I, I want to be clear and I, I want to make sure people aren't misunderstanding you, you either. I think you were clear about it, but just to even make it doubly clear, we're not saying that accountability partners are bad ideas. We're not saying that using, you know, filtering software or things like that in your household, especially with kids is a bad idea. We're not saying, you know, keeping your kid from having full access to the internet via their phone or their right. PlayStation or laptop. We're not saying those things are bad. We're saying those things are symptoms that you can treat, but you're not killing the disease. And the disease is a sinful heart that needs to be completely changed. And so I, I think you, you made that point Absolutely. clear in the book. But in chapter four, this is something that I would probably disagree with. Not probably, I do disagree with you on, and I'll tell you why. So you spend most of chapter four, uh, you basically spend that entire section of the book encouraging men to confess their sexual sin in all of its details from little to big yeah. to their wives or to their, their significant other, you know, could be a girlfriend or a fiance or something like that. And so what I've seen in my experience, because I have a lot of guys come to me before saying, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm right. doing. A, a multitude of different sins. And some of them specifically have struggled with this particular sin. Some of them, it's been affairs and, and all that. They, they, they right. went full, full bore into it. And some of these guys went the route of, I'm going to drop all these details on my wife. Not only am I going to tell her about the sins that I've committed, I'm right. going to give her, and when I say details, I mean details. I'm talking about when and where. I'm talking about positions. I'm talking all of it, right? right? And what they've done is they have flooded their wife with a bunch of information that they can never fully absorb. They're never going to be able to overcome the details. They're never going to be able to not think about that particular thing when they see that person right. or see someone that looks like that person or all of that. And partially why I think it's very dangerous for men to share all these details with women is they're not wired the same way that we are. They don't look at things the same yeah. way that we are. They're not sexually attracted to things with their eyes as much as a man is. It has to do with their wiring. And that's why they're a good mate for us. So 
give me a little bit more on the the confession of all these details because I'm yeah. I'm all about confessing and all those different things. But straight up, there are women that will just never get how you could possibly look at another woman and still love her. She'll never get it. Right. Well, number one, I'm so glad you brought it up because that is probably the biggest pushback I receive from men all over the place that read the message or invite me in to speak to their groups. I receive it from pastors more than anybody. Like, hey, we don't encourage our, our men to confess everything. And, and the reasoning is about the same as what you said. You know, you can destroy your wife with details. And so I don't write about expressing all the details in the book. What I say is confess all your sin to your wife. And I also talk to men all the time now, hey, it's not something you read this book and then just go lay it on her. You know, seek wisdom. Talk to her. Get into counseling. Submit yourself to your church. Walk it out. It's a process. But here's the the premise of what I'm talking about when I say confess all your sins. Your wife is God's daughter. And nowhere in the Word does it say that God is okay with you keeping her under some sort of deception her entire life. Let me ask it to you, Kyle. You, you have two boys, right? Yes. If you, if you have a daughter one day, and she grows up and meets a man, and he comes to you sometime later and says, hey, you know, I ended up having an affair on, on your daughter. Would you tell him as a father, you know what, let's keep this from her. Let's not talk to her about it. And I know you wouldn't because you said you're all about confessing. And that's where, that's where you'd be. You would figure out a way to confront the issue with him. You'd walk alongside with him and say, how can we, how can we make this right? How can we restore this marriage? I'm not telling guys to go confess the positions, the locations, the hair color. However, if a wife asks those questions, you're going to have to tell her. You can't say, I'm not going to tell you any details. That's just going to cause further strife. Most women that we've met with, my wife and I were in marriage ministry for years through our church. They don't want the details, but there are some women that want details. I think the reason why, so like if you have a woman that uh, would want the details is because they think that's what they want because they think that will help them understand. Right. And so in that position, I think it's maybe even more advantageous to protect them from further damage, which to them may infuriate them further or something like that. But it's like, there are certain people that want things that they think are good that clearly are not for their betterment. And so I think that's where that, that argument kind of comes into play. I do want to move on to, to chapter five, where you start talking about porn. Uh, you, you talk about porn using the language of addiction. So I'll use this quote here. The church today either isn't aware or isn't willing to admit that most of the men sitting in the congregation are muzzled porn addicts. Yes, I said the majority. And yes, I said addicts. So later in the book, you say, quote, the majority of men today are porn addicts, unquote. So this is where we get into the addiction model. And so there's a lot of people that would push back against that. I had the guys from S2L Recovery here a while back, you know, they they were talking about, you know, basically physical and chemical dependence as, you know, if you treat it like an addiction model, it kind of cuts against what you were saying earlier, which is, hey, this is a way deeper issue than can be solved by, you know, a, a some sort of a software or some sort of a block or an accountability partner. So when we talk about it as an addiction, I think that that's a little bit dangerous because there are big differences between physical dependence, habit, and addiction. Yeah. A lot of people in the church have a habit, 
right? This is a habit. This is just something that they do when they're bored and they're alone. That, it's, it's a habit. It's not an addiction. It's not a compulsion. It's not something they absolutely have a physical dependence on. So I think it is somewhat dangerous to look at it as an addiction because we live in a culture now where everything is an addiction or everything is some sort of right. a thing that can be treated with a pill or a magic drink or something like that. So do you, do you think that the, the word addict is the right one to use there? Because I'm not sure I agree with that. Yeah, honestly, I don't care what word we use. Addiction just sort of describes it for most men to comprehend. And, and in a way, it is an addiction from the stance that the Bible says our sin, sin never satisfies. And so looking at, at women lustfully, looking at pornography, sexual sin, if you go talk to men that have been in it long enough, you'll find that most have moved on from the general pornography they started with to deeper and darker pornography. And there's studies yeah. out there that show that pornography does the same thing to a brain that a, that a paradrug, a mixture of two major drugs will do to your right. brain. And the Bible already told us that. You know, the Bible says, you just read it, 6, 8, Corinthians 6, 18. It's against our flesh. Your brain is flesh. Se sexual immorality is wreaking havoc in men physically because it's against our flesh. So in a way, I talk about it from that angle as an addiction. You keep going deeper and deeper. You need more and more to satisfy yourself. Right? I think at the end of the day, I see your point too. I don't, and that's why I say, I don't care how we describe it. I use the word addiction because most men cannot get free from it. And so they identify with it. You know, what's funny about that is if using the word addiction makes you take it seriously, then call it addiction. And Amen. so I know people like to mince words and all that. And like, I'm not against the people that are against the addiction model. That's something that until a couple of months ago, I never even thought about how 12 step programs to get people out of alcohol. Not only is the recidivism rate so incredibly high, but these people are trying to basically put band-aids on their cancer. And so again, if you want to call it addiction and it'll allow you or your congregation to take it seriously, then have at it. Now, moving on, and I teed this up a second ago when I was talking about kids and technology, but in chapter seven, you do talk about technology and specifically with kids around. And it is astonishing to me how naive parents can be, especially like I live in, a, in an affluent area where all these kids from elementary school, they're walking around with iPhones. It's their parents' old iPhone. That's how they, they look at it. But it's unlocked. They have complete access to the internet. So every manner of violence and depravity and sex, they can get at these incredibly young ages. They give them a PlayStation and a television in their bedroom with full access to the internet. And again, porn finds kids. You have a yes. lot of kids that see porn for the first time and it found them. They clicked this and went to here and then went to here and then all of a sudden titties. And it's like, oh no. And no. their seven-year-old brain can't even fathom what they're watching. Right. And yet that is now giving them a script for how they are to look at that part of a woman or look at what to do with that part of a woman. So my question to you would be, you have a lot of dads listening to this, a lot of dads like me that are very, very concerned about their sons being exposed to pornography. But the thing is, is you're not going to be able to keep it away from them forever, even with all the filters and all the different things you could prevent it, your kid will be exposed to pornography, not just your sons, but also your daughters. Many of them will see it without seeking it out. I, and I had John Tyson on here. He wrote the book, The Intentional Father. He said, how a dad reacts to that first yes. time their kid sees porn will make a huge difference on how they act sexually moving out, whether they operate out of shame or operate out of, you know, some sort of a grace filled love. So what do dads do in your opinion, whenever they first find out or their kid confesses to them, Hey, I looked at porn. 
Yeah, kudos to John Tyson because that is that's something dads need to hear probably more than anything. Is your reaction when you do find out or or you catch them in it mm-hmm. is so pivotal, pivotal of how they're going to respond and how they're going to open up to you going forward. I heard this on Focus on the Family years ago. A grandmother had caught her her grandson looking at pornography. And she said, well, come here, let's talk about it. And she said, he said, Grandma, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed. And her response was this. Hey, don't worry about it. You're sexual. That's just part of who you are. That's how God created you. You're supposed to be intrigued by that. And I'll never forget hearing that because I, I have said, oh, I, I so hope that's going to be my response. I need to remember that because if we, if we automatically reject or condemn our children when they're caught or they confess something to us, they will do what most of us do. They will continue to hide in their own shame. I just read a statistic, Kyle, this morning that said 91% of children under the age of 13 are hiding sexual immorality from their parents. Yeah. 91%. It's not shocking. And so what, what do you do as a dad or, or a mom that may be listening when you find out or they confess or you catch them in it? What do you do? Your response is so key. Um, the second thing is, Oh, I just lost my my thought. Well, let, let me let me hop in here just a little bit. I think that it's a great opportunity to point them to the biblical model of sex yes. because that's yes. like if if your kid comes home and says, "Hey, you know, my my friend says he's homosexual. What does that mean?" Or, yes. "Hey, my my friend just told me they had sex with their their boyfriend or girlfriend." Like, you know, I thought they weren't supposed to do that. That is a great time to point them back to what you said earlier. Sex is meant for one circumstance and one circumstance only. And that is in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's it. Yes. There is no other, Amen. regardless of what woke churches say or what woke culture says, that is the only time it's acceptable. So when that happens, yes, it's okay to say, Hey, you're sexual and God gave you uh, the, the gift of sexuality so that you could give that to somebody else someday, but don't just stop there. Cause then they're going to think, Oh, this is totally normal. So if I see it, this is a good thing. And then they're not going to know right. what to do with their erection. They're not going to know right. what to do with those feelings, but you tell them you ground it in something biblical morality. But is that fair to say? Absolutely. So well said too, Kyle, you know, here's why most parents let's, let's focus on dads. Here's why most dads don't do anything because they're in it. Yeah. They've been coping with it True. their whole lives. And so you just can't give what you don't have. So is and, it and if you if you try, you're gonna over you're gonna just destroy it. You're gonna turn military and and set up all these rules and you're gonna condemn it. If you do really believe it's wrong and you're struggling, that's your only option. So is it a, a form of imposter syndrome at that point? Because the dad's like, well, God, I still haven't kicked this porn thing, so I can't exactly tell my kid not to do it. Because a lot of dads feel like saying, do as I say, not as I do, is right. not a good idea, which in certain circumstances, it is a good idea to say that. Do as I say, not as I do. Even if you're not admitting to your kid, hey, I still do that thing. But I guess, well, t- talk to me about that a little bit more. The imposter syndrome, the dad that feels like he can't say anything. What would you say to that dad? Yeah, I mean, what you just said, you still got to tell them that it's wrong, that we don't look at that. You still got to tell them the context of why we were, we were designed sexually. Right. But at the same time, that should kick you in the butt yeah. to stand up 
and be the man God's called you to be, to be the leader of your, your family, to be the spiritual leader of your family. I meet men all the time that say they're Christians, but they don't even, they don't go to church with their own family. What those people are, well, what those people are is they, they believe in God by dint of birth. So like I was born in Oklahoma. So since I was born on this precious red clay, apparently I'm a Christian, right? It's that it's a, it's a cultural understanding of God, but it's no giving over your life to Jesus and making him the center of your existence. Um, now in chapter 13 of the book, the rubber really starts to meet the road a little bit because you describe the safe model, S A F E, the safe model. So that stands for stay away. F is flee. E is escape and D is death. And so you can maybe go into that context a little bit more, but I do want to bring up a flee story that you brought up there because we know the scripture about, you know, fleeing from sexual immorality. Don't hang out near it. Don't get close enough to to where you get singed and not burned, but to flee from it. And in the book you describe Manny Pacquiao, one of the greatest boxers of all time, uh, he was doing, it was either, uh, you know, the, 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 standoff or, or face off or something like that. Or right. he was at some sort of a media event for one of his big fights. I don't even remember who he was fighting. It's not important, but he looked up on stage and as is true with a lot of these boxing things and even UFC things is there, you have a scantily clad girl up there. That's probably going to be one of the ring girls that's being paid to go up there and be hot. Manny Pacquiao sees these bikini clad chicks on stage and goes and talks to somebody. And then they usher these women off stage before he comes on and does his thing. Now, some people would look at that as prudish and all these different things, but he was like, look, as a Christian, I don't want to be around that. I don't want to be near that. I don't want to be photographed with that. And it reminded me of a story. I used to work for major league baseball in New York city. And there was this, uh, it was kind of a weird job, but we would always have celebrities and baseball players come through and we would do interactions with them and take pictures and do videos and all that. And we were told that Kate Upton, the model, the, the right. swimsuit, uh, you know, SI swimsuit cover model two years in a row, the world famous model. She was like the hottest thing on planet earth at that exact moment. This was uh, 2012. We were told that she was going to be coming by and I was like, Oh no, I don't want to be anywhere near that. Right. And I mean, we're working. And when she walked in the door of our studio, there's probably 40 people. And if I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. The place froze men and women all together. Didn't know what to do. They all of a sudden didn't remember what tasks they were supposed to be doing because they were so struck by her. Right. This is at the height, the peak of her hotness and celebrity and whatever. And what I did that day, and I made that decision before that ever came is like, I'm not going to be anywhere near that. I know what my job is, but if she's over here, I'm right. going to be over there. And if she walks over there, I'm going to be upstairs because it's like, I don't want to be accidentally in a picture. I don't want to be anywhere near that right. temptation, but guys aren't wired that way, dude. They will not do that. They'll be like, all right, there she is. I'm just going to get a little bit closer. You know, I just want to make sure I'm available. Maybe she needs a, a glass of water yeah. or maybe she needs her foot rubbed or, or maybe she needs me to yeah. stare at her titties all day in, until she feels like she's bored with my presence. But why do most guys do that? Why are we so dumb where we just like sneak close by? Why don't we create that distance? Yeah, we're designed that way. You know, back to what we said earlier, we are predators. I mean, you don't see a, you don't see a lion see his, his prey and just you know, walk away from it. If he's hungry and most men are always hungry for sex, I don't know what the statistic is, but we think about it every three to five seconds. And so most men are hungry. If you see a lion that's hungry for prey, he's not just going to run the opposite direction. His flesh tells him get the prey. And so that's why, but if we're going to lead the men, God bleed the lives God called us to as men, we have to obey the Bible. He designed us that way, but then he gives us the instructions on how to 
obey him and fulfill right. the plan that he has for us. When you have to pre-make the decision, right? Absolutely. So before Kate Upton got there and before I felt the temptation to, to look at her and, and to be a part of all the oogling that was going on in the room, I had made the decision. I'm not going to be anywhere near that. Manny Pacquiao at some point in his life made the decision. If I can help it, I'm not going to be in pictures with these women. I'm not going to be around these women. Right. Same thing is true. Like people get onto, you know, Mike Pence or Billy Graham about not being alone with a woman, not having dinner with a woman, even if it's in a professional context, you know, with a bunch of other people around never in the reason is because they pre-decided I'm not going to put myself in a place where I can be tempted. And I think right. that's, that's very, very important for all of you guys to understand if this is your area of struggle, pre-decide. Don't figure it out in the moment because it's not going to go well for you. Yeah. Uh, the last quote from the book that I want to go through, and then we'll get into a couple more questions before we get you out of here, is in chapter 22. It's a very interesting quote, so I'll read it here. There is no other sin to which God has given us an on-off switch. Have you ever thought about this? Sex is a sin outside a covenant marriage. Sex is not a sin inside a covenant marriage. Can you think of any other activity God says is a sin depending on the venue in which it's performed? I got to be honest with you, man. I'd never even heard something like that, but it makes perfect sense. And I immediately started racking my brain because I want to be a contrarian and be like, well, have you ever thought about this, that, or the other? But sure. that is the only one where the context or the venue of the act makes it either glorifying to God or sinful. So give me more on that. Yeah. It, kind of, it, it makes me think of the fireplace analogy. If you've ever heard it, hmm. you know, a fire in a fireplace is beautiful. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. But a fire outside a fireplace is dangerous and it's, it's, it can wreak havoc. And that's sex inside a covenant marriage bed is a beautiful thing. God tells us to go all out the word of the, the word that we're supposed to live by tells us to go all out in the covenant marriage bed. Outside of that, it tells us it'll kill us. It is not allowed. It's against God and it will destroy you. And so that's, that's why I, I talk about it and write it that way. It's because God only allows it inside the covenant marriage bed. Outside of it, it is against us, even though we don't see the consequences daily. I mean, you can go spend the, a pastor can go spend the night in porn and get up and preach and pray for people the next day. I mean, we've witnessed it in real time right now with Hillsong Church. Yeah. I mean, Hillsong, New York, Pastor Carl Lentz, who knows how many affairs he had, but he'd get up and preach the word of God every Sunday at his church. The lead pastor, Brian Houston, just resigned over something that his father did that he covered up but also over allegations against him, sexual allegations against him. I mean, none of us are ever going to be fireproof against this. We're told, I mean, Proverbs, Solomon, King Solomon, who we all revere, the greatest, the most wealthy man of, of our time, uh, the greatest man in the Bible. Solomon was the most disastrous man when it came to sexual immorality. And, and at the end of his life, he tells us, through the word, how to avoid it. You know, Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man take fire and expect it not to burn him? Proverbs 5, 8. Stay away from her doorstep. It's talking about a sexual temptress. You cannot get near it and expect it's not going to affect you. That's how men are baffled, how they, they do everything possible. They got software protection. They got accountability. They're praying more. They're, they're going to church more. They're serving. They're tithing. And, and they're doing great. And they've conquered for three days or three weeks or three months. And then all of a sudden, they just walk right off the cliff. 
And they get baffled by that. But if they really study their life, they'll realize that they let themselves be touched by the fiery dart of lust, by even just glancing at a woman lustfully. In your situation, you made that decision because you knew you were flammable. You knew you'd have eyes that would desire to look. You knew you're designed that way. So you got out of there. Most men are not willing to do that, to your point earlier. But if you're going to conquer sexual immorality, that is the number one requirement. You have to be willing to admit that you're flammable. Yeah, I think flammable is a great way of thinking about it because, you know, that day, whenever she walked in, everybody wasn't just flammable. They were covered in gasoline. That's just basically what it is. So you have to be ready. But that does bring up a few things that's a good reminder to us is to never put our faith in men. Like in, in these pastors that, you know, don't put your faith in a Carl Lentz or a Brian Houston or a Bill Hybels or a Ravi Zacharias. And like, look at right now, maybe you're a Matt Chandler guy. Maybe you're a Vody Bauckham guy. Maybe you're a Stephen Furtick guy or a Judah Smith guy or a Tom Askell guy or a just in, insert person here. If you worship at the altar of your favorite pastor, don't be shocked when you're woefully disappointed at a decision that they've made. Because then we get into this, maybe you were saved at a church where Craig Rochelle is the pastor or, you know, pick a random person as the pastor. And then they do some horrific thing, right? Like maybe they murder somebody or they rape somebody or something happens. And I'm not saying Craig Rochelle is a racist or a rapist or a racist or any of those negative things. But if they do those things, all of a sudden you're having an attack of conscience. Like, am I saved now? Like after Ravi Zacharias, all the stuff came out about him and his sexual sin, right. people that were saved at Ravi Zacharias events were all of a sudden thinking they weren't saved anymore because they weren't listening to Christ. They were listening to Ravi. They weren't following the words of Christ. They were following the words of Robbie. And that's not to say we can't learn from these men. Obviously, I post videos. I repost videos of a lot of these pastors all the time because they're great. You know, they're they're solid and they're great theological teachers, but they're not the point. But the thing about it is, is it should be a reminder to all of us that sex is a gift. That's the on off button that you talked about. Sex is a gift to us in humanity, but we can use it improperly. I was just listening to a sermon from Mark Driscoll recently. He talked about Mm -hmm. the fire. He talked about creating a fire in the fireplace is a good thing, but my boys want to create fire in the the floors of their rooms. And like, that's not a good thing. That's going to create a whole bunch of issues. And so we just got through talking about a bunch of pastors. And so we we should probably get into this Uh, several times in the book. You referred to men that seem disengaged or, you know, passive while at church, which is apparent to everybody with a functioning brain that that happens, right? You go into a church and that's the type of thing that you're going to be seeing. So you pretty much hang that completely around the neck of sexual sin. Like I'm I'm trying to summarize your your viewpoint, so feel free to correct the record if I frame it incorrectly, but you hang that around the neck of sexual sin, but I'm not so sure. Because in the churches that I've been in, in the, in the churches that I've consulted with and that I've visited and things like that, a big thing that a lot of churches have is that their church isn't man-friendly. It's it's telling the men by the things that they do, by the music that they sing, by, by the types of sermon content, by the volunteer opportunities, hey, church is not for you. We didn't have you in mind when we put all this together here. And so we're just going to push you off a little bit that way. I'm sure sexual sin has an impact on that, but I'm not... I'm not willing to say that that's the main reason. So tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, well, I think you're wrong. And I can think that because I wrote the book and that's my message. And that's my experience. I may be wrong. I haven't been to every church in the world. But I will say this, Kyle. In the last 20 years of me talking to men openly, talking to pastors openly about this topic, it is the number one attack in the church. And every man that I've personally met that is a passive Christian, they have sexual immorality in their life. I'll never forget the first muzzle that I saw on a man. 
And this was a great homeschooled kid, great Christian guy, just salt of the earth. It took him a year to come back to me and confess that he struggles with pornography all the time. And so I believe sexual immorality is the number one attack on men in the church. Why? It was the number one attack on men in the Bible. I mean, you read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and you pick out all the the main men characters, you'll find that most of them had disastrous sexual failures. I mean, we all know King King David and Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. but we don't really think of his son, Solomon. King Solomon was probably the the most disastrous failure in the Bible when it came to sexual morality. And so that's why I, I talk about it the way I do. Passivity on a, I mean, think about it, Kyle. If you're a, if you know you're a son of the king and he has called and equipped you to do a mission on this earth and you're sitting in church passive and afraid, what is that? You know, I talk about it as, as Matthew 12, 29 states, how can you enter a strong man's, a strong man's home, take everything he has, unless he first binds you as the strong man? And so I use that as an illustration that that's what's happening in men's, in the homes of families all over the world today. The men are muzzled down and can't do anything about it. And the enemy's coming in and wreaking havoc. And he's doing it in churches. Most pastors are muzzled men when it comes to sexual immorality. I would say all of that I agree with. I would just extend it out even a step further so as to not absolve any of these churches or any of these ministries of their issues with men. Because it's like part of the thing is, you know, like I say all the time on the show, they do a once a year men's event and they call it men's ministry. And they're shocked when the men stay muzzled or when the men, so it's, they're focusing on programming and not discipleship. So I'm sure that you would co-sign that and saying that discipleship is obviously a a positive thing. So I think there's some synergy there. Uh, A couple more questions. And this one, obviously for, for people, it's like, this may seem a little curt, but this is right speaking specifically to what we're what we're talking about here we need to talk about masturbation and so obviously if you're a kid and everyone around you is doing that and making jokes about it and all those types of things and they're needing that that sexual release because there is a physiological need for that stuff to get out of your body right i'm trying to keep it as you know as nice as possible for those uh with little ears that are listening to this but i do know a lot of single men i know guys that are in their late 30s that are single that want to be married that have have not found uh, the woman that they are to be married to and all those different things and they're like what do i do do i literally just sit around and wait like for for a wet dream or any of those types of things to be tempted in, in my dream world or something like that. What do I do? And so I, I've given some suggestions to them as to what I would say. You don't cover it in the book, so I'm giving you a chance to go over it now. A kid yeah. or, or a young man is like, look, I'm single. I'm not married. I need this release. What do I do? Yeah. The very first thing I would say is I do not believe, because I never found it in the Bible, that sex is a physical need. Now, I'd been there, and I've been to the point where I needed it. My flesh needed it, and it's because I allowed myself to be tempted. And well, let me, allow- let me back up just a little bit. Yeah. Let, me, let me hide in there. There is a physiological need for semen to be extracted from the body. Like, there, there is, there's plenty of evidence. It, if your body's produced semen, it has to be extracted. Agree 100%. How does your body produce semen? I'm not a doctor. So I pulled a Kentanji Brown Jackson on you. I'm not a biologist, so I don't exactly know. So help me out. Tell me. Yeah. Well, we don't really know. God designed sex. He designed it. 
And science hasn't figured it out. They have answers for it. But here's what it comes down to. when you It's the same re- reason you get an erection. How do you get an erection? What in your brain tells your penis to erect? What is it? It's chemical. We've 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 uh, talked about it in science. You know, the, the brain sends a signal, releases a chemical. There's endorphins involved. Whatever. We are designed that way. Lust, 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 lust is what starts it all. So if you lust after a woman, your body says this: prepare for sex. And if your body says that, semen is produced. And so is it possible that if you practice not lusting, that your body doesn't produce semen? I'm living proof of it. You're probably living proof of it. You know, once you come to a point where you start turning off that switch and sex is not an option unless you're entering your covenant marriage bed, thoughts about it, visions of it, you, you stay away from it all. There's no need to masturbate. There's no wet dreams that come along. Now, I'm not saying men... All men are going to be the same on this. Most men that go through this detox and start staying away where supposed to, they're just hit with a flood of memories and stuff that come, and they end up having wet dreams. You're going to go through that. Most men do. But listen, what do you say to a guy when, when you tell him, you can't masturbate? Sex is, that's sex. I've never read anything in the Word that says self-sex is permissible. That's what masturbation is. Oh, I'm thinking about my wife. Nowhere in the Bible does it say self-sex is permissible. And so is it possible that you can live a sexually pure life and the only place you can have sex is in a covenant marriage bed with your wife? It's 100% possible because it's in the Word. Now, if you're a non-Christian listening, do whatever you want. Unless you go in all in with the Word and sell out and actually become a Christ follower— None of this is going to apply to you anyways. You can justify your way out of it completely. But if you're a young man, an unmarried man that's listening, and you struggle with masturbation, but you want to be pure, go all in and be vigilant to what God's calling you, and then tell me if it works. So not to quibble about things that aren't ultimate to the point, your body physiologically, biologically produces semen every day. It doesn't produce semen when you're when you're attracted to a woman or something like that. It's something that is just constantly happening for for a a boy that is able to do that that has reached a certain age. Right. That, that's not the main point. The main point is what you were talking about, which is is it permissible or not? Because there are a lot of physical things that you feel a desire to do that are not permissible, that are not sure. moral. So I know that there are people that have a chemical attraction to alcohol, let's say. Right. Alcohol was given to us as a gift to consume. Jesus's first miracle was turning water into wine so that a, a Jewish family would not be embarrassed and so that a party could continue, right? But if taken to its extreme, it's a bad thing. It's not given to you so that you could get right. drunk and make a bunch of bad decisions. The same is true about sex. It's given to us as a gift. And again, I, I'm absolutely with you. I do not see a single mental theological gymnastics move that I can make to tell a young man, dude, it's totally okay to, to masturbate. Right. Hey, hey, I'd rather you masturbate than to go have sex with a hooker. Ha ha. You know, like some sort of idiot would say. So I think that that's a, a very, very important distinction to make. Last question of the day that I want to kind of get to you. And this is kind of getting out of the world of theology, more so getting into the world of, of law, I guess you could say. But there are all these fights going on in culture. Obviously, you know, there's there's a fight uh, against abortion and, and the laws therein and, and all that stuff that goes there and the fight against, you know, whatever thing that's your thing. Maybe it's taxation, maybe it's immigration, who freaking cares? But 
making porn illegal. I'm wondering if that is a fight that's worth taking on. And I, I'm saying that it is, but we as Christians and even as conservatives, abortion seems to be that main fighting ground. And I'm not sure when this will be coming out. So maybe we'll have the official Roe v. Wade decision by then or, or whatever that situation may be. But then in a lot of ways, the fight over the unborn and, and the sanctity of their lives is just beginning because then the fights go back to the states and the state legislatures and we kind of go from there. But after we kind of get that that fight solidified, should that next fight be making pornography straight up illegal? Because the libertarian in me is like, well, you know, uh, I, I can't tell everybody what to do. This isn't, you know, a theocracy or something like that. But do you think that's a good thing that we should try for? Because we're not going to get rid of it entirely. But if it's illegal, we could reduce the amount of people that are taken into it, right? Yeah. Wow, Cal. That's such a... That's such a hard question to just give an answer to. Number one, absolutely, it's worth fighting for. Is it? I'm more thinking, is it possible? You know, it's. I, I think about gun ownership. I mean, the left is just for years, decades, have been trying to destroy guns. What What has that done? You know, nothing. You know, it's just caused more people to want to own guns. There was a study done in the '70s in Denmark, and I write about this in the message, where they thought that by legalizing porn, it mm. would reduce rapes and crimes in society because porn was illegal in the 70s in Denmark. And yep. what did it do? When they when they legalized it, rapes went up. Crimes yeah, same thing with drugs. Increase. When people are like, yeah, just legalize all drugs. It's like, you morons. Like, like you legalize weed in a state that it wasn't legal before. You think the, the black market is just going to disappear? No, they're going to undercut the state market that has to pay taxes. Like yeah. this is this is direct line, but go ahead. But if enough of us stood up and tens of thousands, it's not millions stood up to, to make porn illegal, that'd be a glorious day. Do I think it's possible on this earth? Probably not. And I mainly say that from a biblical perspective that the, the Bible tells us the world is just sinking further and further away from him. And at one day, he's going to end it all. And so I don't know if, if that's even a possibility or back to your original question, is it worth fighting for that? I think it's more worth fighting to do what God calls us to do and stay away from it. Yeah. I think the difficulty of the fight is not a reason whether or not to fight. And that's certainly not what you said, but obviously it's right. it's difficult, if not impossible. So is fighting against sex trafficking. So is fighting against drug trafficking. So is fighting against abortion. All of those things are complicated, right? But that doesn't mean they're not worth the fight because Absolutely. if there's, if there's a way that we can stop five-year-old boys from being introduced to porn and seven-year-old girls from being introduced to porn. Like think about how silly it would be to say, yeah, we don't need to fight against, you know, chat rooms where, you know, 40-year-old men are prowling for 11-year-old girls. You right. would seem like you were in like a complete evil moron at that point. Right. And so it's like, I think it's worth the fight. How we go about doing that is kind of a hard thing. It's really hard to say. It is a really, really big question, yeah. but it's something that I think we, we should continue to talk about. But man, I really appreciate all the time that, that you spent with us today. Thank you again for sending me this book and letting me kind of dig through it and ask you the questions. But that's all for Absolutely. me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, uh, I'll say something. I don't know if you want to put it in here or put it, paste it back in, but you just, you just said something. How can we keep a five-year-old boy or girl looking at it? Mm. Kyle, you know what they're finding now? They're finding that depending on what type of pornography a child is first exposed to will be what he he or she gravitates toward. Yeah. So if a child is exposed to gay pornography first, they're finding that that child is saying that they may be gay or identifying as, as gay at a young age. Mm. 
And so there is such a push in our society right now for gay pornography for that reason. Um, is an astonishing thing to think about, but I also think about scripting. And I think that was, uh, Dr. John Fober that first kind of brought that to me is if a young boy or young girl is exposed to a certain type of pornography, that becomes their script for things in the future. So that's why you have yeah. all these reports. It's, it's horrific of these young girls that have been exposed to hardcore pornography or young men that have been exposed to hardcore pornography. And they have their first, you know, sexual encounter with a real person at the age of 12, 13, 14. And they do these really rough sex acts on these people that have not had sex before. And you have girls that need to go to the emergency room because they've been essentially anally raped or forcibly vaginally raped or any of these types of things. Because the girl's thinking, if I don't look like I'm in pain, I'm probably not enjoying it because of the porn mm -hmm. that I've seen. And the boys think if the girl doesn't seem like she's in pain or if she's not, you know, moaning like a circus animal that, you know, this, this isn't, then I'm not doing it right. And so they're getting their script from hardcore pornography and trying to, to help that person and, you know, revitalize a, a true biblical sexuality in that person is going to be almost impossible to do. Absolutely devastating. Well, so, that's a terrible way to end the podcast, but I guess we got to end it somewhere. But man, I, again, I really appreciate you going into all this detail. It probably warrants another conversation down the road as more stuff comes out. But J.S. Shelton, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my interview with J.S. Shelton. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today is a link to his book, Unmuzzled, Escaping Sexual Sin, Satan's Grip on Men. So you can check that out there. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>